I want to encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to dive through uh, this chapter. I'm going to spend a little, little bit of time really focusing on the first verse and getting into the larger context, but let me just set the stage for where we're going. Um, Hebrews, a beautiful book, love what it does for us. It takes the images of the Old Testament, both the positions God created for worship for his people and the symbolism in the worship that they had in the Old Testament, and they tie it all together to show how it culminates in Christ. It takes the idea of temple, sacrifice, lamb, Sabbath, law, and it shows us how it's important in the Lord. And then it takes these positions, which we've discussed already in the first two chapters of prophet, priest, and king, and shows us how all of it culminates in Jesus. In essence, it really takes all the Sunday school stories you might have heard growing up, and it ties them all together. So they're not just loose end stories unto themselves, but shows the bigger picture of what God is orchestrating. The things that God created in the Old Testament aren't an end into themselves, but are a picture of what would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. The Bible refers to them as shadows, everything that I just mentioned to you. And the reason this is important for us, I think even as believers to discuss, is that uh, we have a tendency as people to create sacred cows. Uh, sometimes we make big deals out of things that we realize when we step back for a minute that they probably shouldn't be as big of a deal as what we've made them to be. And in fact, we can fix on, fixate on them so much that we begin to worship the method uh, rather than see the method for what it was intended to be. And when it comes to methodology, I think that's important. And, and I think we really see it hinted to or demonstrated for us in scripture, when you read through the New Testament, one of the things that you'll see is there's nowhere you can really turn to in the New Testament that tells you exactly what should happen when God's believers gather together. Like what's the order of a gathering? What should a service we call it should look like? Um, there are things that are discussed that the church did when they gathered together, but there's not this order of service that every church throughout every century was dictated to have to do and perform when they gather together. And I think the reason God uh, gave us freedom in that, though he gave us some uh, thoughts on what we should share within the context as we gather, um, the reason God gave us freedom is that every culture is different. And even generationally, what looked like what was familiar in one generation may not be the same in the next generation. And so God gives us flexibility depending on the cultural context and the time period in which you are to leverage your culture to better speak the truth into the hearts of people. It's a beautiful thing. That's why wherever you go in the world, you, you, you should hear the same message taught with God's people, but there's different ways in which God's church worships. And, and it's a beautiful thing. So we don't, we don't marry methods. And if we marry methods, we risk becoming irrelevant to the next generation. In essence, what I'm saying is be careful what cows you make sacred. And, and Hebrews really challenges us to put into perspective some of the pinnacle images of the Old Testament and, and illustrating for us how they culminate in Jesus. Now, in saying everything that I just said about methods, I want us to know that that practice is important. Some of the things that we do as a church become important because they become staples to your life. Like if I said to you this morning, there's certain things in your Christian life where when you met the Lord or made decisions for Christ that you can go back and sing a special song or something happens in a church service that you just maybe remember growing up as a kid that when that happens, it takes you back to that place and it really ties your faith together. Those things are important. I don't want to undermine those. Um, Organ, organization is important. Every organism that exists requires organization. Every living thing has to have some organization to it. Otherwise, it can't exist. But here's, here's the trick is too much organization and you become a statue. And too little 
and you become chaos. Right, so when we think about the reason for which God created his church, God did some profound things when he created his church. He tells us, but the power that lives in this church is through the spirit that you can storm down the gates of hell. Like, that's, that's pretty cool, right? But the foundation of, of the power that's represented in the church is in our identity. Right? And so we want to make sure that we make a big deal out of the things that are supposed to be a big deal. And every, when, it, when it comes to defining the purpose of the church, every purpose for which anyone would dictate as it re, is regarded to the church, it must rest in the great commission and the great commandment. And the great commission is to go into the world and make disciples. We don't define the purpose of the church God did. And he created the purpose of the church to make disciples in the world, fully f- devoted followers of Christ. The church isn't a building. The church is God's people. God's desire is to reach hearts. And he tells us to love God, love others. So we fulfill the call of God to make disciples by loving God with all our hearts. When we love God, if we love God, then we're going to love people. We're going to love the things that God loves. And what God loves is people so much that he gave his life. And so we pursue the hearts of people to proclaim the goodness of God that they can find their identity in him. So every or- organization has to have organization. <laughs> every organism needs organization in or- order to live. But you want to have the priorities put in the right place. You don't want to make sacred cows over methodologies that weren't intended to last into to generations, but to use them for exactly what they are. They're just methods. And to find yourself rooted on the things that are to endure. And, and Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 starts off that way. The author says it like this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. So he starts talking about the the particulars of Jesus in verse 2. But before he dives into that, verse 1 really shares the anthem for what God's community is about together. So if you think about your identity, it's not just loosey-goosey, floating around, whatever you want it to do. No, God created his church for a purpose, and making that purpose a priority has to do with the power and authority that God calls us to in this world. If If you go back to Matthew 16, 18, which I just referenced, where Jesus says, uh, the gates of hell will not even prevail against his church. All of that was based on a confession. Jesus looks to his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus looks back to Peter and said, blessed are you, son of Barjona. He calls him Peter, which means little rock. And he says, based on your profession of faith in the bigger rock, who is Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So the identity of Christ becomes central to the anthem of what we're about and the worship that we engage in. This is what sets us apart from anything in the world. This is what makes us unique. And this is what we rally around. And so Hebrews chapter 3, this is where he's starting. Because remember, what we talked about with Hebrews is that this church, this early church, is about to face persecution to a depth they had not experienced before. And when life throws these kind of curveballs at you, it has a tendency to do something with the heart. It can either make you stronger, more committed in Christ, or you can get a bit jaded. And your heart can become calloused. And the thing that draws you back in the pursuit of Jesus in the midst of challenges is the love of God in your life and the love of God you demonstrate back to him, reminding you of of the basics of what your foundation is. And so this is what he says, therefore, this summary word, therefore, holy brethren, This word brethren, it can be translated brethren, but I think it more accurately fits the identity of brotherhood or siblings. So what it's saying is not, it's not just written to dudes. It's saying church, the brotherhood, the, the family. Here comes your identity. He says, partakers of a heavenly calling. 
No longer do you live for the identity of this world, but you recognize your life is about the next, right? His kingdom, his glory. And so he says this word then, consider Jesus. So look, in the brotherhood, this anthem, living for a different world, consider Jesus. And he's not just saying it like this. Um, you know, let's just, let's just take a couple seconds and think about this so we can move on with our life. This word consider literally means pay careful attention. This is your resting spot. When life rocks you, this is where you come back to define identity. This is who God made you to be. Holy brethren, set apart, a set apart brotherhood. I mean, anytime anyone creates an organization, a club, there's a reason behind it, right? And this is your reason. Partakers of a holy or heavenly calling, considering with careful attention Jesus, the apostle and, and high priest of our confession. Now, we've talked about some of the titles that Hebrews has given to Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. But he introduces a new one here, the idea of an apostle. Why would he do that? And he doesn't just say an apostle and a high priest. He says the apostle and the high priest of our confession, right? So our confession, this is your creed. This is your anthem, right? This is the central figure of all that we are. And he's calling him an apostle and high priest. Now, why in this section is he introducing a new title? I mean, we just got past prophet, priest, and king. Why now are we talking about apostle? When you read the New Testament, you see this office created. Uh, there was, I think, a specific office for certain people who were apostles picked by Christ to go into this world to proclaim the gospel. The idea of apostle literally means one sent forth. We use it today and not in a capital A office of apostle sense, but more in a little a um, it, when we use the word missionary. Anytime a Christian sends someone out to plant a church, like my wife and I moved here years ago, um, start this church, we were sent out. We're called missionaries in other places, more pastor here, but you're sent out. So that's like an apostle little a. That's what, that's what this word means in its most crude form, one sent forth. But when it comes to Jesus being called an apostle here or the apostle, I think there's a little bit bigger picture. And let me explain. Uh, Jesus, different than all other apostles, the distinctions made in being the one here. And, and when you consider what's been said about Jesus in Hebrews chapter one and Hebrews chapter two, Hebrews one starts off talking about Jesus being the prophet. If you remember, it said in former times, in the times past, God spoke to the prophets, but today in the last days, it says God speaks to us through Jesus. So he is the final revelation, the culmination of all things. And then as it got into Hebrews chapter one, into chapter two, all the way to verse four, it starts to compare Jesus with angels because the challenge is when you're reading Hebrews, you see Jesus as his last messenger. And the question on the minds of the people would be, okay, well, what is Jesus? How do we rank him? How do we think about him? We want to categorize things that make us feel comfortable. We tend to do that as people. And so they start thinking of Jesus as this higher angelic being. And so what the author does is he starts off verse four and five and says, no, Jesus is actually the exact imprint of God because he is God. And he's greater than the angels because he is God. And so when you, when you define the word angel, the word angel literally means messenger. And so when you think about the prophet, the prophet is God's spokesman to the people. That he would represent what God wanted before the people. In the case of Jesus, he represents what the father wants before the people. 
And so the prophet is the spokesman. An angel is a messenger. Uh, the apostles are the same thing, one sent forth. And so Jesus is this, this last, the, the final dictation of the culmination of everything God desires. That makes him the apostle, the one sent forth to you. And not only is he the one sent forth from the father, he's also a high priest, the high priest. And what that means is while Jesus came on behalf of the Father to communicate about God to you, he's saying to you, God loves you, God's pursuing you, God is sending his son to die for you so that he could be your high priest, meaning so that Jesus could become flesh and stand in your place to understand and sympathize with you as high priest so that as a high priest, he could represent you back to the Father. That's why Jesus said in in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So not only is he sent as the prophet, he is proclaimed as your priest. And so this becomes central to your identity because he is the connection in your relationship with God. He is everything. And and so in thinking about that, he starts to describe it this way. He says in verse 2, he was faithful to him who was a who appointed him as Moses also was in all of his house. And and if you think about this word house, it's actually uh, maybe a more specific translation would be household. So he sees God's people as a household. Peter describes us that way in in first Peter chapter two, you are a household in God's family. And Moses was a part of that household, an important piece, right? So Jesus was faithful to the father who appointed him as Moses was also in all of his household. So I I like what he does in verse two. He's writing Hebrews to the Hebrews, right? And what he's doing is he's creating common ground. So what Hebrews does is it really conflicts sometimes with individuals that create sacred cows over particulars of theology that won't let go because it's going to challenge your thinking. But when you're challenged, when you're challenged in your thinking, what you want to do with people is you don't want to come in with a sledgehammer. (laughs) You want to build common ground. And so Moses is beautiful common ground. People considered him just a great leader historically for the Jews. And so they're comparing what Moses did to, to the, the service of Jesus, and they use that as a place to build. Now, let me stop here theologically and talk about something. Um, It says that Jesus was faithful to the Father who appointed him. I want you to know, um, in living in Utah, I'll open myself up. Anybody ever wants to ask me any question about any theology or why we do anything at the church, please feel free. We want you to have an, an open platform as a church family to feel comfortable to do that. And, um, we don't get defensive. There's no question that is considered taboo. I mean, just ask it. Um, and, and one of the big questions I get asked commonly about living here is, is this statement in verse two, uh, he was faithful to him who appointed him because theologically, as we've stated together, we recognize that Jesus, um, was fully God. Actually, he is, when Jesus became flesh, we talked about this last week that Jesus is um, not only fully God, but he's also fully man. We read in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, who is Jesus, and the Word was with God, talking about the Father, and the Word was God. And then it goes on in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in Christianity, we talk about the Godhead, the Trinity, right? And Jesus is the only one in the triunity of God to become flesh. The, The Father, the Spirit have no flesh and blood. Jesus was the only one to become flesh. And the reason Jesus did that was to become a sufficient sacrifice and savior for your sin. He had to become flesh 
to pay for the, the sins of flesh. And so Jesus took that on himself. And so the confusion comes before people because they have this erroneous concept of really the identity of who Christ is. Um, What I get asked is when Jesus is walking this earth in the flesh, you look at stories like Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, it tells us the Father speaks and the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And the question is, well, how did... If Jesus is God, how did, he, how did that happen? Did Jesus just throw his voice like a ventriloquist and make the Father talk since, since Jesus is down here and therefore the Father talks? And the answer is no, Christianity does not believe that at all. In fact, uh, what they think is uh, people tend to think sometimes we think Jesus and the Father are the same thing. And so Jesus is here and then he'll all of a sudden morph into the Father and all of a sudden morph into the Spirit. We don't believe that at all. That's considered heresy and the church has condemned it over and over since the beginning of Christianity. That is not biblical, okay? Do not believe that. Christianity does not believe that. Here's what we believe. There is only one God. In fact, the Old Testament is so strong, monotheistic in the belief of one God to walk away saying anything else is saying, I never read the Old Testament because when the Old Testament was written, it was written to a group that was polytheistic and God wanted to really see his identity. And so he writes the Old Testament, monotheistic, one God. In fact, Isaiah 43, 10, Isaiah 44, 6 and 8, we've read this together. It says there's only one God. There's only ever been one God. There will only ever be one God. So in Christianity, we say there is only one God, right? And the Bible calls Father, Son, and Spirit God. In fact, when you think about the the triunity of God um, in the Old Testament, Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us, in the plural, let us make man in our image. Then he goes back to the singular. He made man in his image. When God created in the beginning, it says God speaks and the spirit hovers. So you see this triunity working in Jesus before he ascends into heaven after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He tells us to go into this world and make disciples and baptize them under this authority in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he takes this idea of God and he equates it equally in Father, Son, and Spirit. So what we say as a church is there is one God existing equally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All of them 100% God, but distinct from one another. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Spirit is not Jesus. They're all distinct from each other. And it's seen in Jesus' last statement when he says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why when Jesus is baptized... The spirit descends and the father can speak because Jesus is not the father. So when you look at this passage of Jesus serving the father, the question, there's still questions to ponder with this section because Jesus became flesh. Theologians call this the hypostatic union where Jesus, hundred percent God creator of all things becomes flesh. He takes on flesh and still being hundred percent God. He becomes hundred percent man. Why? One is so that he can be a sufficient sacrifice for you. And two, in the flesh, so he can demonstrate to you what it looks like to follow after God. What does it look like to be faithful in flesh? And Jesus lives that out. And, And I want you to know this, guys, that this idea of the hypostatic union has astounded theologians throughout the centuries. In fact, one of the earliest statements you can find in the Bible comes in Philippians chapter two. It actually starts in verse uh, three, but I'm gonna show you from verse five. In Philippians chapter two, verse five, Paul makes a statement here. 
but he's actually writing a song that the early church had been singing for several years before Paul even wrote this letter. And the reason the church wrote this song is because they're looking at Jesus, trying to figure out how Jesus being fully God and being fully man, what, what does that mean and what does that look like? And so they created this song to sing to one another as they gathered together to remind them of the identity of Jesus because Jesus is our anthem. It's the doxology of the church. It's the place we come back to as an organization with, uh, that's, has, or an organism that's, that's got organization, I should say. And so this is what they said. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, in the flesh, he's been an example. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what it's saying about Jesus is Jesus was God. But while still being God, he showed us how to live a life of service by becoming the greatest servant to ever live by dying for you to the point of death. And it goes on and tells us from here now that God has highly exalted him so that every knee will bow to Jesus. So it's this picture of Jesus being God again. And so what it's saying to us, he didn't ever cease being God, but it's now living in that. So what it's saying to you about Jesus in this, in this story is that Jesus was God in the flesh. And when he walked into a room to serve people, he didn't demand immediately, everyone recognize me as God, but rather in being God, he chose to serve. Fully God, fully man. And so it starts to show Jesus and his humility in the story, faithfully serving just as Moses to tie this, this common bond. And then it, it breaks away a little bit from that. It says this, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So it's saying this story, Moses was good. It's not trying to undermine Moses. But he's saying, look, Moses was a part of the household. The builder of the house is greater. And Jesus is the builder of the house. And oh, by the way, in verse four, the builder of the house is also God. So it's saying while Jesus is serving, Jesus is also God. In the context of this passage. And and I I love that the author's doing this. Because you can think in this context, in the Hebrew people, uh, it's really popular to talk about Moses. I mean, when you make your top five list of most important people to exist in Jewish history, if Moses isn't in your top five, you got something wrong with you, right? Moses is up there. It's like he's doing this comparison now in our lives of the debate between Michael Jordan and LeBron James here. Who's the greater? And anyone that says LeBron can leave now. I'm just kidding. But it's, we know it's the answer. It's Michael Jordan, right? And then you look at this verse. It's like, who, who's greater, Jesus or Moses? Are you making sacred cows out of things you don't need to make sacred cows over? Maybe with Michael Jordan. But, but who cares? We know I'm right. But, but the point of what he's saying here is Jesus is greater. Moses was just a piece of, of the greater purpose. He, count, he's saying he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. I mean, it's like this in our culture. Um, man, we, and I probably should use this because I just use a sports illustration, but people get really passionate about things that just don't matter after tomorrow, right? Like if I said, who won the Super Bowl two years ago? I mean, probably most of us watched it, or at least the commercials or something, right? I mean, but when it comes to remembering that, I'll tell you it was the Patriots. But, but a lot of people can't remember that, right? Because it doesn't matter. But man, in the moment, so passionate. 
And you think about the Jewish people here. Let's talk about Moses, right? Moses is the man. He is my man. Well, I'm picking Abraham. Well, you're worse because I got Moses, you know? But he's, and, then, and then all of a sudden you drop, you go in a room where people are talking about things that don't matter. And then you try dropping this. Hey guys, what about God? <laughs> you drop the God bomb. It's like, mm, let's just be, we don't talk about those things, right? I mean, the reason for which you were created, why you matter, where you get your worth, value, and meaning in life. Let's not deal with this. Okay. Let's talk about semantical things that tomorrow I'm not going to care about, but today I'll punch you in the face over. Right. Like, that's, that's, that's what it's like in this, this passage is saying, um, yeah, Moses was important, but don't lose sight of what's most important. Putting the priorities where where they matter, and I think the psalmist, or the, excuse me, the, the author of Hebrews did this beautifully for us. He's telling us when you read this, these first three chapters, God didn't just make this up. This has been ordained from the beginning. And in fact, He's quoted several times throughout the Psalms how to find this in the Book of Hebrews, and we've looked at some of those passages. He goes back to Psalm 2, verse 7. He goes to Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. He goes to Psalm 8, and he shows us these were considered, a majority of them anyway, are kingship psalms. And Israel would sing it to the king, but they noticed as they would sing these psalms before their king that they were also messianic because those psalms could not be fulfilled ultimately by man. And so the author has just been building this case for us to help us see the significance of, of, of Jesus in our lives. And then he goes on from here in verse five and six. He says, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Like he's saying, Moses was important. You don't want to throw Moses under the bus. Moses was a faithful servant in all the house. And look at this, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But he's saying, look, while Moses was important and he was faithful, which is great, I I hope it could be said of us we meet Jesus face to face, one thing could be said. You were faithful. But then he says this about Moses, that the testimony of which he, he shared was, were to be spoken later. That ultimately the point of Moses wasn't Moses. It was something greater. So then he says this in verse six, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The power of the church rests on this anthem. That's why he's saying to you guys, don't just take this lightly. And don't just take this as another story out of a series of Bible stories. But see how this ties together in Jesus. Because this is what we're built in as his house. And the power of his church rests in this. This is how we move forward. You want to know how the gates of hell prevail? Or don't prevail, excuse me. We don't want to prevail. It's resting in the rock that is Jesus. And then as he's talking about this, the author takes a step back. Because we can read this and be like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, I'm doing that, right? This is me, Anthem. I'm singing that praise. I'm living on that rock, right? And then he starts to say in Hebrews chapter three, verse seven, he goes back into the Old Testament and he quotes, he quotes Psalm 95. And, and Psalm 95 is a beautiful Psalm if you want to read it later this week. In the first six verses, he, he talks about this glorious God and how, how beautiful he is and worthy of worship. And then in verse seven, he starts to talk about people who have seen God in this great glory and, and turned from him. 
And the people he's talking about are, are the Jewish people that were taken out of Egyptian slavery and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. People who have historically seen some of the greatest miracles God has ever done. And in those moments, their hearts were calloused. They were jaded. And he's saying this as if to say, this is where our hearts can go. So he goes, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, talking about the wandering out of Egypt, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We'll talk about rest in a little while, but. You see that God, this, this God sending Christ, this apostle to reach hearts, performing some of the greatest miracles, and yet hearts were hardened, deadened on the inside. You, know, you look at a psalm like this, and I, I got to tell you, when I think about, if anyone ever wrote a song in my life, if I could just say, I would rather not have a song written about me than have one like this, that, that would work here. And it's saying, we're going to sing songs about all the mess ups you've made with your lives, right? And it's going to be example to the future generations to not live this way. That's what Psalm 95 is, talking about the, the people in this time period. Like, don't be this. And their hearts were hardened and seeing some of the greatest things God had ever done. And they still... They still walked too proud to turn to the Lord. You think about this psalm and maybe Hebrews, this, this section in Hebrews as it relates to the place around us. You know, I think this psalm is to provoke us for the, for the state of the heart of individuals around us. Right? If, if you love God, you'll love the things that God loves and what God loves as people because he gave his life for them. Right? Um, we can have the tendency to live this way. And guys, I, I want to encourage you when it comes to Christianity, please don't be afraid of where the truth will take you. Be hungry to ask questions and learn. Yeah, in, in following after Christ with my life, this is, this is what I've found is a lot of people in this world base religious beliefs off of feelings. And at the end of the day, feelings aren't facts. And feelings can mislead you. But when it comes to Christianity in comparison to other beliefs in this world, and this isn't, just, this isn't said to be mean to other religions, this is just being honest. Nothing holds a candle to it. Nothing compares. It, it almost feels ridiculous when you historically study Christianity and the validity of its foundation, and you compare it to anything else. Because they use the word religion, it's like it can be in the same ballpark. And I'm telling you, there is nothing, there is nothing that compares to the validity of Christianity. That's why we say here as a church, please feel an open door to always ask questions and ask, I don't care if you ask a thousand, but we need to have a place to do that because Christianity is that rock solid. But I I hope in just seeing the psalm, it, it, it has our heart compelled for the same way God feels for those in this world. God is love. And in that love, it compelled him to give himself away for the hearts of people. In reaching hearts, one of, the, one of my favorite passages in Scripture in, in the pursuit of a heart is in, in Titus chapter 3, um, where Paul is writing to Titus about reaching people. And this is what he says, Malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. 
For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So what it's saying is, look, when when the Lord chose you, it wasn't because you were special because of something great you did. It was because you were special because of something great he did. And, And it's a bit humbling to stop and think of where your heart was apart from Jesus. But when you see where your heart is apart from Jesus, it softens your heart to the heart of, heart of others. And you want to experience them to experience that same loving God that you experienced. And so in saying that, notice what it doesn't say in verse 4. It doesn't say, and now that you know that God, go into this world and beat the tar over the heads of all people. until they, It doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say, be their Holy Spirit of conviction and guilt the snot out of everyone you see. Notice it doesn't say that in this passage, right? What, what it's telling us in this section, it's about to tell us, is you can't argue people in, into the kingdom of God. But here's what it says in, instead in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So it's not according to your wonderful works, but his mercy that rescued you. Look, what compelled the heart to embrace Christ wasn't, wasn't the guilt and the shame bashing from other people. It was the love of God. Love compelled the love of Christ. And can I tell you the place that Jesus desires to demonstrate his love is in his people. He rescued you, saved you, redeemed you, restored you to be a light in this world and you reflect his love in the lives of people around you. That's why we say as a church we have some, some core values that I think just reflect what it, what it takes to represent Jesus in this world. We, we definitely want to worship in truth. We don't shy away from truth because truth is what transforms us. It's, it's the catalyst uh, for change in our lives. We don't want to be afraid of it. We want to pursue it. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, God, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, which means set them apart in your truth. It's where we find identity. It's what we're talking about in the Hebrews. It's the anthem of, of who we are. So we, we worship in truth, but at the, same, at the same time, while we worship in truth, we share that truth in love. Meaning it's, it's not about uh, fighting against people, but rather fighting for people. It's not about proving we're right and, and someone else is wrong. It's about leveraging the truth to serve others just as Jesus used his truth to serve us. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, though being in the form of God, took on the form of his servant, and even to death on the cross, Philippians 2. We don't use truth to put ourselves above people to show that we're right and they're wrong. We use truth to get beneath people to serve them so they can become all that God has called them to be. So we, we share, we, we worship in truth, we, we share the truth in love, and, and in desiring to, the, to, to do that, we want to become all things to all people. We don't want people to meet us where we are, rather we want to go to meet them where they are. That's why Jesus used the word apostles, why Jesus called us in the world to make disciples. We don't create this as a fortress, we create this place as a launching pad to go into this world and represent Christ in the hearts of people. We want to love people where they are. We understand we all come to Christ from different places, different questions, different needs, different backgrounds and baggages and all all sorts of things. But God's called each of us to reach out in this world where people are and and love them as Jesus loved them. Uh, In thinking about that, though, I I don't want to put the thought too far on to other people. Like when we think about Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, how these people saw these great miracles and turned their hearts to God. It's good for God to give us a heart for our valley that way. But I don't want to focus so much on the outside that we neglect ourselves because here's the reality. 
if you're not healthy in your walk with God, you're not going to give a rip about other people as far as Christ goes anyway. And so when you're healthy in your relationship to Jesus, that's when you carry the heart of God for others. And Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it, it comes back to that. It says, look, take care, brethren. Take care, brotherhood, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of assurance firm until the end, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So, so what it's reminding us here is, is, is now where is your soul in all this? Because life can get you jaded, your heart can get hardened. But it reminds us in verse 13 uh, to encourage one another as long as you have today. It's saying every one of us have, has a responsibility. It's communicating to us when, when someone comes through our doors, every soul matters to God. And this is the moment, no matter where your heart has been, uh, to, to encourage one another in Christ. You know, think about what falling away might look like here. It could, maybe in the basic sense, someone's saying, you know, I'm still going to be good, but I'm just not going to pursue this God thing anymore. But the Lord in this passage, I think he's referring to this as, as rebellion or sin because we're created for him. And the reality is when your heart becomes hardened, like it's saying in this passage of scripture, when you've gone through life and it's made you callous, it's made you jaded, is that we can become prisoners of our past. And in doing so, we let our past dictate our future. Rather than allow our past to provide us wisdom to navigate today. Jesus called us to be gate stormers against hell. That by his power, you see God do miraculous things in the hearts of people. And you can let the past define you or you can allow it to refine you with who you are in Christ. And that's this place where we're making this, this conscious awareness of asking the question now, where is my heart in relationship to Jesus? You know, I think about Peter in Scripture where Jesus had a, a number of disciples leave him, and he turns to his closest disciples and he said, Are you going to leave me too? And Peter looks back and says, To where we go, you have the words of life. And Peter's the same one that gave the profession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon that confession, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And just a few passages later, Peter is cussing about Jesus, denying Christ. His heart was jaded. Where's Jesus in all that? I love the story as the Gospels tells us because right after Jesus is crucified, after Peter denies him, Jesus resurrects and Jesus shows up on the shores of Peter's life as Peter's gone fishing. And he comes to Peter and he communes with Peter. He has breakfast with Peter and he says, says Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? It, isn't it beautiful to know? I mean, you think about today's Father's Day and and all the baggage of life that happens in those types of relationships. Like some of us may look at life and be like, man, I had a great father. Others look at life and think, man, I had a bad father. And when you think about God being described as a father, sometimes that's hard for us. But here's what you're seeing in the story. No matter what your earthly father was like, God is a good father. 
Because here's Peter in the midst of his failure, cursing at Jesus at his greatest hour of need. And Jesus shows up on the shores of his life, communing with him and says, Peter, do you love me? While Peter's love was limited, God's love was still unending in pursuing him. And here's the crazy part, guys, is we can see a story like that. We could see God's love and we can say, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with that. But you know, our heart can still be proud and not want to turn to him. And that's, that's where this story ends in verse 16 to 18. It says this, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Pride. Pride in the pursuit of what they desired above God in their life is what they pursued. And it tells us in this story that that because of that, they did not enter his rest. Can I tell you what what the Lord desires for your life? To rest in him. We're going to talk about the full picture of that rest next week because he dives more into it in chapter 4. But God desires for you to rest in him. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. It's your anthem. But yet, what keeps us from that? It's pride. What does God think about you? We see a God that pursues you in the midst of sin, but why? Why let the heart, why let the heart fight against that? I mean, the question for all of us is, do you love him? When Jesus becomes our greatest delight, nothing will keep us from pursuing him. I'll end with this story. There was a man in the 1700s by the name of Robert Robinson. He he became a believer, I believe, under the preaching of George Whitfield, which was during the Great Awakening periods. And, And this man actually went on to become a pastor, a minister. And while he was a minister, he wrote a song. It's called Come Thou Fountain. He also coincidentally had the tightest jerry curl to ever exist in history there. So 1757, he wrote, Come Thou Fountain. And he was in the ministry and years into the ministry, all of a sudden his heart became callous and he left. And he was in England when he was, was born, raised into, into ministry. And history tells us that after he left the ministry, he went on to France and he just indulged his life in sin. And one night, as he was leaving, he got in a carriage and was riding with a group of people back to wherever, I guess, he was staying. But he got in a carriage, I guess, modern-day Uber transportation. So he's riding in this carriage, and there's a, a young lady in this carriage who had just become a follower of Christ. And she's reading poems. And she looks at this man that came, came in, and she wants to read him this poem and asks him, he wants to know his opinion. So he obliges, is going to give it to her. So he opens up her book and she begins to read this poem. And to Robert's surprise, he hadn't realized that the song that he had written had become so popular. And the very poem that she reads to him in this carriage is the one that he wrote. And as she, he, she begins to read this poem, she then looks up when she concludes to ask him what she thinks about that. And she sees a man broken in tears. And he confesses to her, I wrote that poem, but I have no idea how to get back to that God that I love so dearly. And she looks at him and says, don't you see 
It's in the third line of the very song that you wrote. Streams of mercy never ceasing. And that night in that carriage, Robert gave his heart back to God. What I'm saying for us this morning, guys, life has ups and downs. But Jesus is our anthem. And God cares deeply for where your heart is right now. No matter how far you feel you fall, streams of mercy are deeper still. Why? Because God desires for you to rest in him. That's why you were made. That's why today exists. We're gathered together today that your soul could sing with joy at this God who calls you in such deep love to rest in him so that from that fountain that flows in your life, the light of Christ may shine in this world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.